0: Greetings and salutations. It's East Spencer Kite. It is Sunday, September 18th. UFC Vegas 60 is in the bag. I'm back from vacation. I'm a little under the weather, but not terribly under the weather. My wife, unfortunately, tested positive yesterday. I so far have tested negative. We're kind of sorting it out. Travel days suck. They're long. You sit next to people. It's germ-infested cabinets, but we're doing okay. There will be some coughs, there will be some throat clearing, but we're back. Harry Powell is, is joining me. It is the afternoon in London. The ADCC semis and finals are coming up. He is overjoyed. He binged yesterday's action and then passed out from an excitement coma. So here we are to talk about UFC Vegas 60. Before we get into it, though, you said something to me just as we were about to start, and I said, well, hold on to this. Let's get into this as the, as the start, and you said i'm not enjoying m m a at the moment, please tell me more sir
1: i'm I'm really not uh, Shawnee and I have done a couple of podcasts recently, some that haven't come out yet some some that have come out and <sighs> A little while ago, as in, I say a little while, that's a very English thing. A little while could be 15 years ago, right? What I mean by a little while in this context is a couple of months ago, we put a podcast out on Speaker's Corner and it talked about the difficulty of being an MMA fan at times, not uh, from an ethical perspective, right? not from a, oh, you have to stay up late on the European scene and watch fights and blah, blah, blah. And not the more recent podcasts that we've done talking about sort of covering MMA and the difficulty of covering MMA. Just being a, a fan, whether that's a hardcore or a casual fan, the the amount of information and the the ferocity with which it comes at you is overwhelming. And the sport itself is changing. And this is something that's becoming more apparent in the last series of podcasts that Shawnee and I have done. And this is one of the, the beautiful things about speakers. And I'm not gonna, you know, do an advert for speakers. I'm sure you'll do that at the end, much to my cringe. But um is that speakers is a good platform for us to go in and ask a question that we may not even know our own thoughts about, and then have a discussion between two friends that we may completely disagree but we'll have a conversation and then we'll come away from it. And our thoughts will be slightly more fleshed out than they were 45 minutes ago or however long the podcast lasts. And the more that I sit and think on MMA, more on the UFC, the way that these organizations are run, the way they're marketed, the way they're promoted, I just, it's just not great. You know, the, the marginalization, the discrimination, the, the, just pure disadvantaged position that these fighters are in and every week there's a new set and a new batch and we're supposed to as media members be able to traverse the the line with which an Alexander Solzhenitsyn may talk to you about or a Carl Jung or you know any of these philosophers and that's that you're peering into the abyss of darkness in one side and yet you're supposed to be shining light. And the thing that I struggle with the most in this whole thing is that regardless of whether you're a platform that has three followers and zero views on your content, or whether you're somebody like an Ariel or even somebody like a Sphere Mate that has thousands of eyes on on your content all of the time, you're generating money for the UFC you're generating the further degradation of these fighters condition and you're further generating eyes on a sport that is completely discriminatory. And at the moment, I'm just going through an element of time that is difficult for me to comprehend that.
0: So I will start with the speaker's corner plug because it is absolutely my favorite podcast. Um, to listen to for exactly the reasons you said, everybody, I think you should go and support the Severe MMA Patreon. It's a couple of quid every month. The stuff that the, the boys put out is tremendous week on week on week. Just go and do it. I hear you. I hear you. The last two weeks of of not being in the cycle of, of covering events, of not being in the cycle of consuming other content. And I don't consume a ton of stuff outside of, of what we do and what severe does um, for a lot of the reasons that Sean has expressed on, on various platforms. It's been nice. It's been nice to just, you know, be away from Twitter and be away from did you see who said what to who and, and all of the everything, because as you said, it is, it is, there is, it's a lot. It's a lot. Doing this is a lot. You guys did a speakers recently about sort of the fatigue of covering MMA, and posited that you will at one point do a a, a week in the life, or a day in the life, or a month in the life, whatever it is. I'm here when you need me.
1: I was going to say we're offline. Sean
0: and I said that we'll wait. We'll wait for you to yeah. Evolve. I'm I'm here to be a part of that. Um. Because I think it is, will be illuminating for people. Uh, The amount of work, the amount of energy, the amount of time that goes into this. And that's difficult when you put it, that's difficult just from a human effort standpoint. When you then put all the other stuff on top of it, it's very hard. It's very, very difficult. We saw last night um, 13 fighters from Dana White's Contender Series. On the card, there were a lot of comments about, man, the UFC is, this is quite the racket they got going. They run this annual talent search. They get these people in the door for the lowest amount of money possible. They let the high-priced ve- veterans go, and then this is what we get. And I understand it. I think there's some some nuance to it that's obviously missed and, and can be fleshed out in greater detail if we ever want to have that conversation. But on the whole, yeah. It's, it's a lot. And that's coming on the heels of UFC 279 with Nathan Diaz stories and Tony Ferguson questions and Hamza Chamaev and a whole bunch of stuff that just, you know, I was really glad to be away from it. Truthfully, I saw everything that happened. I, you know, continue to follow you and communicate with you and Sean and Ian and saw everything that was happening, but It it is a lot, and I I fully understand the difficulty. And then even when it's the really interesting thing to me, and this will bring us into where I wanted to start looking at yesterday, is it's really interesting and it's really it makes it more difficult when even just the actual fights themselves present questions and present frustrations and headaches and concerns. Because the main takeaway for me, or the the first talking point for me today between you and I, is the cuts that happened. Some of these these cuts that transpired on Sunday night, Song Yudong had a nasty gash on his eyebrow. Gregory Rodriguez had the worst cut that both you and I have ever seen. Um, David Basheret got cut by a headbutt, like, and we had a doctor, we had a ringside physician that kind of just came in and was like, you're good? All right, cool. Let's go. Let's keep at it. And in each of those instances of the last two fights, I sat in my office shouting at my television. What are we doing here? Like, what are we doing? There was a point in the main event where Paul Felder, and I think Felder is the best commentator overall for the UFC right now said something along the lines of like, you don't want to stifle a kid that's still growing and looking to work his way up. And you know you don't want to hand him a loss because of this. And I understand that mentality. But my response that I put out there was, you also don't want this cut to be the thing that changes his career indefinitely. And there's a little piece of this that it's going to be a thing forever. We see, I mean, Nathan Diaz fought last weekend. He and his brother, forever. The the book on them now is those boys will get cut. They've got all the scar tissue. You can imagine they will get cut and it changes their career. Song Yudong looked very good in that fight. He is 24 years old. He is powerful. He is athletic and explosive and he has a brilliant future. And I sat there watching it and said, I think some of that brightness has been dimmed because of this. And I need somebody to step in there, be it the referee, be it the doctor. Heaven forbid it be his fucking corner. To just say, you know what? We'll live to fight another day. This isn't this isn't our night. This is too bad. We need to go. And the Gregory Rodriguez one is worse because we all saw the picture afterwards. Dana White tweeted out when he was getting patched up. That cut exposed what looked like to me. And listen, not a doctor, didn't do well in sciences, can't say for sure, but it looked like it exposed a pretty big vein running basically right here, right down, I would say probably from his brain to his nose. And the doctor kind of just looked at it between rounds and was like, yeah, he's fine. Let's just, let's just go. And that, for me, on top of what you said, is where I, when I get into the like, oh, man, this shit is tough. And I'm, I'm actually, honestly, as much as I've been away for two weeks and we just got one back in. I didn't watch UFC 279 while I was away because it happens late at night, which I know you find rich. I'm really glad we have a week off. I'm glad we're not diving back into this. I'm glad I don't have to just dive into the cycle tomorrow because as great as some of those fights were and as entertaining as some of them were, I kind of feel a little hungover. I kind of feel a little exactly what you're saying. What were your thoughts on those two fights, sort of the the physicality, I guess, is the word I'll use, and the brutality of those two fights and those two cuts?
1: So I think the poignant point that's... Is- bang about in my head is that I love MMA. However, it's difficult enough to justify MMA as a sport, both ethically to people that haven't quite had the, the beauty moment blossom in their brain. But there is, there is a fine line a very fine line in MMA where it goes away from sport to something darker. As that doctor, you are holding a fighter's life quite literally in your hands. And for me, the Song Yudong cut was a Bad one to begin with, right? Lovely elbow, beautiful cutting elbow, timed it perfectly, landed it perfectly, gorgeous stuff. I think it's fine to allow the round to continue as it lands because it's difficult to assess immediately what the the level of the cut is. Now, the the counter to that is Uh, I think it was Mark Smith, stopped the fight with Javid and had the doctor check that cut immediately. Personally, I have no problem with that if that had happened in the Song Yudong fight. Now, the cut was bad, but it wasn't horrendous to begin with, right? Um, The problem, though, is that when the corner did their work in between, I think it was rounds three and four or rounds two and three. I can't remember whenever the cut opened. Um, they did an amazing job, an absolutely fantastic job. Song Yudong walked back to that fight with a big lump of Vaseline in and no blood coming from his, from his eyebrow bearing in mind, his eyebrow had become two eyebrows and they were on completely different levels on his face. Right. And the doctor is like, ah, sure be grand. Fair play to the cup, man. Incredible work. However, about 40 seconds into that round, <laughs> right, Vaseline is hanging in front of his eye and he can't fucking see anything because there's a river of blood going into his eye and mouth. I think there's a side of this that isn't spoken about enough and that's that we're looking at an organisation that should be in the business of protecting its fighters. But instead it's in the business of making money from its fighters. It's in, it. it's in the business of exploitation, not in the business of safeguarding, I think that if the referees are given an assignment, right? Yes, they're an independent contractor, the same as the doctor. They're an independent contractor and they act upon their own in some fashion. That is also a cop-out and I'll give you a parallel. In my line of work, contractors are employed as scapegoats. They're employed on a short-term basis to complete a project, and if anything on that project goes wrong, the contractor is blamed and the contractor is fired. They are given blood money, essentially, in that it's your blood that's on the line if something goes wrong. However, the UFC uses the same commissions and the same fighters and sorry the same doctors and the same referees all of the time, but scapegoats them anyway. And the elephant in the room here is that the UFC are in control of this. The UFC are in control of what referees they employ and don't employ. And we know this because when uh, Benoit Saint-Denis and Alessio uh, Zaleski dos Santos fought, and that referee almost had Benoit Saint-Denis damaged for life, or almost certainly did have Benoit Saint-Denis damaged for life, Dana came out and said that referee will never, ever, ever referee for the UFC again. So we're eliciting the, the choice here, and we're just allowing these sorts of egregious situations to continue and continue and continue. Now, the Song Yudong cut, I don't think it will affect his career in the long run. He's 24. He'll heal like Wolverine. He'll probably be fine, right? But the Gregory Rodriguez cut, if you watch that fight back, as I did this morning, Mark Smith ceases to watch the fight at all. He's not watching anything that uh, Chidi Njokani is doing. He is looking, he's not even looking at what Gregory Rodriguez is doing. He's staring at the cut questioning whether he's just been transported to an alien versus predator movie set i don't think we should have to wait for the doctor i think the referee should be bestowed with powers that if he looks at something like gregory rodriguez's cut where he has a hole in the middle of his fucking face the ref can be like you know what lads i don't think this is sensible
0: The parallel I always come to in terms of your point about exploiting versus safeguarding, everyone, loads of people moan about all of the changes the NFL has made over the years in terms of restricting contact to the quarterback, changing the way people are allowed to hit, how you can hit, what is penalized, all of these different things. People moan about it all the time, right? Oh, they just let these guys do whatever. Nobody gets hit and it's not the same and it's not whatever, whatever, whatever. And the NFL is its most popular, most lucrative, most successful, most enjoyable to watch from a sporting standpoint it has ever fucking been. Amazon just got involved. The next TV deal will be Astronomical. And yet the UFC, as you said, goes, nah, it's just about putting out the most fucking violent thing imaginable so that the lowest common denominator fans, and I'm sorry for painting with a broad brush, but fuck it, so that the lowest common denominator fans that go, let them keep fighting and that moan every time a doctor steps in there and says, no, we're done, can get their Coliseum moment. Can get their bloodlust moment. Can get there. Sorry, I'm not on camera here. Can get there. Thumb up or thumb down, right? We got to do better. And and you and I have talked about it <clears throat> privately. I think we've talked about it here. I've always advocated for, and and will continue to advocate for the UFC. Will continue to be better, the more it cares for its athletes. I don't think anyone can argue that. I don't think there's, and and even just like the general people involved, right? The more you bring in the best people and give them the greatest opportunities to succeed and all the tools imaginable and all the resources and care for their long-term being, the better you're going to be. You may not have as many ridiculous comebacks as we had with Gregory Rodriguez, on Saturday, and people will always argue, well, if you stop that fight, you rob him of the moment to do that. Great, sure. There's also the possibility that Chidi and Njokawani hits him with another one of those elbows or another one of those knees, and that vein fucking severs. And then we're dealing with real oh shit moments. And same as when we talk about stoppages, I will take avoiding the catastrophe, avoiding the moments of Maria Agaput- a biting her tongue and frothing at the mouth because she spat her mouthpiece out and is not doing any of the correct things to defend a rear naked choke that we can say, yeah, we can stop that before she goes all the way out. Like we're, it's fine. It's she's not getting out. It's done. Let's just be over with it. It's actually one of the things I like about jujitsu from what little I watch. There are moments where guys are just like, yeah, I'm fucked. Yep. Let's go. And as soon as it's as soon as it's right that far away from being locked, they're like tap. We're done. It's fine. I'm gonna move on to the next one. I don't need to go all the way out or have my elbow dislocated or whatever it may be. And some people will choose to, but like, we we gotta do better. We just like it's such a simple thing to say, but we've got to do better. I will say, and I make this point not as a pushback. Um, that Dos Santos, St. Denis, happened in Abu Dhabi, UFC absolutely full-fledged control of who is there, who they bring. When they are in different markets, obviously, athletic commissions, select officials, all of those things. That being said, if anyone thinks the UFC doesn't have sway, doesn't have influence, doesn't have power in those in those situations, I will just point to Steve Mazzagati working as a timekeeper last night, and not working as a referee and official in Las Vegas for any UFC events or, or to my knowledge, any events in general any longer. So I'm going to disagree slightly with chokes.
1: Uh, loads of guys go out in jiu-jitsu. For sure. And I think that with a choke – whilst it's not great for your brain health because you're cutting off air supply to your brain for a short amount of time so that there is a potential of uh, brain cells to die and all those sorts of things. Um, It's way far lower on my pecking order of... I wouldn't like to see, personally, a fight stopped because a fighter is unable to communicate that they wish to end the fight right or they're willing to go out i think for joint submissions i have less of a problem um although i do think that there is an autonomy of choice for sure and i think the autonomy of choice in grappling situations if you break a leg fine your leg will recover for the most part, right? Maybe not in some situations, but for the most part, it will recover. If your arm breaks, it'll recover. If your shoulder goes, you'll recover. If you go to sleep from a jiu-jitsu, from from a choke, a guillotine, anaconda, whatever it is, fine. I, I think that there should be an autonomy of choice in all of those situations. I think, though, with cuts that are that egregious, the autonomy of choice should be taken away from the fighter. Agreed. Um...
0: Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So what I what I would say, and, and not even as a pushback, I agree a hundred percent. For me, the optics of that fight ending the way it did, Robertson Agapova, there's a point there where you as I think it was Mark Smith that was referring that fight, where he can look at it and you know where she's at. And she's you've roughed enough fights that you know what it looks like when a fighter is is just about to go out. And she's clearly made that choice of I'm going to go out because she's had opportunity to tap to me. You can then get in there and just, just that half second before she goes and before we get the gruesome moment. Now, obviously that's a few and far between thing. We don't want Mario Yamasaki and the Michael Kiesa, Kevin Lee fight. All of those things are like super egregious ones. Drew Dober had one years ago, Leandro Silva. I'm not advocating for any of that stuff. I do think there are points and, and much to what you're saying about cuts. There are points where these officials have to be charged enough, empowered enough to be able to just say, no, we're no, this isn't. I understand fighters not saying I want to. Course. I can't. I can't do this. We all understand that. Song Yudong's big beam, smiling, <laughs> right. loving. loving it. Loved every minute of it. Every time Corey Sandigan hit him there, he smiled and wanted to fire back. I struggle and look forward to having some conversations, and it's one of the things I'm going to actually try to talk about this week with some people, ideally on this platform, with the corner thing, because I do think there's. For me, not being in that position, I would like to see more corners just do the like, no, we're done. We don't don't need any of that. We'll be back in six months or whatever it is. And we don't have to continue. It doesn't happen enough to my liking. I'd like to talk to some coaches and some people that corner a lot of fighters to find out a little more of why. All of that unfortunately, and this this is the unfortunate thing about MMA, right you mentioned very early, very early on in this that some people haven't gotten to have their beauty moments those those positive moments that really set them up where they have that counterweight to all of the difficult, all of the hard and I think even in that you know even in each of those fights, we had those beauty moments right we had Corey Sanhagen with a beautiful performance to me. A really, a really sharp, smart, savvy performance. Song Yidong, a great performance in defeat. Rodriguez and Injokwani rightfully getting fight of the night. An absolute slobber knocker of a middling, mid, middleweight fight. That's just fun and enjoyable until those moments where it's not. So let's get to the main event. Corey Sanhagen gets a fourth round stoppage win. Ends between the fourth and start of the fifth round. TKO because of the cut. I thought this was a smart performance. I thought he made the decision early on and understood early on. I can't just straight up box with this dude. I can't just, he's got big power. He's more athletic than me. Just physically, he is going to be able to Not bully me, but but do some things that I'm going to struggle with. So let me introduce a whole bunch of other things. Let me introduce the level changes. Let me introduce takedown attempts that are that felt to me very early on, like they were just designed to get Song Yudong thinking, to get him expending some energy, to get him biting on those feints that we saw later. He shifted from throwing punches to throwing the elbows. He did. The typical Corey Sandhagen switching stances, moving about, engaging on his terms. And I thought it was a very, very professional, very savvy fight from a guy that very recently was towards the top of the division and kind of needed to show that he could make these adjustments to remain in that upper pack for the next couple of years.
1: I didn't see anything new in this Corey Sandhagen performance, and I don't mean that as a detrimental thing. Um... I don't. I don't think he was ever away from the top of the pack. I think it may just be, you know, on that night against uh, Piotr Jan that he he was just a step away. That's fine. The TJ Dillashaw performance. I thought he won that fight. I don't think I've seen anything new. From Corey Sandhagen. I think he is a very cerebral fighter. I think he has a good team around him. He has people around him that allow him to be cerebral. They're not trying to coach him out of that. They're not trying to coach him to be an A and B fighter. They allow him to be intuitive in there because he has the mental capacity to be both intuitive in the moment, but stick to a broad game plan. And I think the broad game plan was a really smart one. The first two shots he threw and landed were both body shots, right? First was a shovel left hook to the liver and the second was a right hand down the pipe to the solar plexus. That to me signified to both Song Yudong and to to everyone else. uh, This is the game plan, by the way, my friend. The game plan is going to be that I'm going to do my best to take all of the gas tank away from you and then run you over. And for the most part, I actually think Song Yudong did very, very well. I think Song Yudong needs to do one thing and well, one thing only that leads to a couple of other subsidiary things but the one thing and i know i say it every
0: single week but he needs to listen to trevor whitman i was watching the fight and waiting to see if you popped on our stream that we had up or sent me a whatsapp i didn't want to interrupt your adcc watching but as soon as that fight started as he's out there just throwing bombs i was like whitman that's all i had to say to myself whitman yeah this is this is it
1: yeah It's uh, genuinely, I think it's one of the most astute pieces of cornering that we have seen in many, many, many years. Um, And it will go down, because I'm going to make sure it does, in the pantheon of MMA. Um, If Whitman can be entered into the UFC Hall of Fame just for that line, he should do. But the reason why it would be so good for Song Yudong is we've seen now that for four rounds, he can throw big power shots whenever you need him to. The problem is that power shots take quite a while to load up. And it doesn't look like it for Song Yudong because he's always really fast, but he could be faster. And for somebody who is slightly smaller in stature, now Corey Sandhagen has a very specific frame and a very unique frame for that for that division. But Song Yudong, if he'd taken 20% of the power off those shots, he would have been able to throw a little bit more volume as well as with a little bit more speed and what Corey was waiting for was the big load ups right he was waiting for the big load ups he knew they were going to come in twos and threes at max so he would throw his one wait for the two to come back and then throw his one and maybe a two or maybe a three or maybe a four or maybe a five if necessary and that's just that's the only wrinkle that i saw from this fight that song Yudong could really use to to change it up and to close that gap because He had iron hips. He defended so many of those takedowns so beautifully well. He reversed a takedown gorgeously well, either in the first or the second, where he used the length of Corey Sandhagen against him. He wasn't fearful to jump on the back and look for chokes. He was able to reverse positions when he fell off the back. The hitting that he was doing, switch hitting, pressure fighting, closing the gap, being able to find his way out of bad positions was great. All of it was great. I think what you're seeing is just an elite level fighter versus a fighter that should be depending on what happens in the future an elite fighter he just has to close a few holes now in terms of the performance overall i was very impressed with cory sandhagen i thought cory sandhagen was able to adjust on the fly well he built into the fight well i don't think he started slowly as been some of the criticisms of his last fight and i thought that when he was in the positions he was in. He was looking to do two things at the same time, which is extremely difficult in fighting. And one was to manage the fight globally and to ensure that he was hitting the body that he was making sure he was cutting his angles and he was keeping himself safe enough from the shots that were coming. But also he was trying to land as ferociously as possible whenever he could. And I thought he did that beautifully well. Uh, A lot of people were saying it was a blowout for Sandhagen. Uh, Aljamain Sterling said that, uh, you know, at points he had it all three or four up to Corey Sandhagen. Uh, I found most of the rounds difficult to score because of Song Yudong's power. You know, Corey could do some beautiful work to the body, could uh, chop the legs up, could land some elbows. And then Song Yudong lands a big right hand, and you're like, well, what do we do now? You know? Um, And the last thing I'll say on this is, and this is probably the the thing that impressed me the most about Corey Santagin was the layers with which he built to allow himself to get to where he thought he was going to be the most proficient. And that was the the close in elbows, right? For Corey, you can't barrel into the pocket because if you barrel into the pocket, you'll get hit with something big. So he starts with outside of the range, body shots. Then he says, Here's some takedowns from way outside. He then starts by landing jabs at a mid range. He's then throwing shots going backwards. He's then showing th- shots at an angle. And he's switching stances to close off the exit routes and cut the cage for Song Yudong. So Song's like, Okay, well, long and mid range is a problem for me. So I'm going to wait until he comes into short range. But the waiting to come into short range is exacerbated by him biting on big shots, uh, big takedown shots and biting on fakes and feints and this and that and the next thing. So when Corey has shut down a lot of the long and mid-range game, by the time we get to round three, we're like, okay, Corey's comfortable and confident to step into the pocket, knowing that he has an extra second of time. That was masterful. Absolutely masterful.
0: The reason that stood out to me, those layers, that that build that you speak of, is that I don't think we saw that in the Piotr Jan fight. I remember talking at the time with Sean Madden, who is a striking coach who has worked with Corey Sanhagen. In the past, we were just sort of online together, kind of chatting about the the way that fight started and was playing out. And If you go back and watch it, Sanhagen is a lot more in the pocket. He is a lot more engaging early and getting away from the things that I would I would qualify as trademark Corey Sanhagen and so to see him come back out on Saturday night and have that performance where it's all the pieces that we love about him it's all the things that we know he can do shows me that he used this time between those two fights to make those correct adjustments to get back to to listen to the coaches, to, to go through things and put himself in a position to continue to be the best version of himself each time out. I thought it was a great performance for Song Yedong. I don't think this is one of those ones, like, I don't think it was a blowout either. I think it's a fight to me that really solidified that he is going to be a problem for a number of years. He's 24. Um, I think weight you, you kind of age out a little bit sooner than some of these other divisions because the youth and the talent that is constantly there and the grind of it is a little bit more difficult than say, I don't know, middleweight. But he's he's going to be a problem. He's he's a hell of a fighter. This was a, a great way to end things. We move to the coming event. We've touched on it a bunch. I don't think we really need to labor on it much more. Gregory Rodriguez with a comeback win over Chidi and Jokawani comes out in the second round after getting that you know unibrow created in his face eyebrow cut eyebrow to really kind of take it to Chidi and Jokawani in the second kind of just threw him to the floor beat the hell out of him it felt very much like Chidi had one of those moments that fighters the fighters have from time to time where you hit a guy with your absolute best stuff and you think all right this is the one that puts him down and He's not going to still be here. And he's still here. And and then all of your confidence and all of your mojo just goes out the window. And you're like, well, fuck. I don't think Gregory Rodriguez is destined to be a championship contender. I think he is perfectly situated where he is, as who he is. And that is a all action, always entertaining, middle of the pack, middleweight, that I will always look forward to seeing. And I hope to God that that cut gets plenty of time to heal and doesn't become an an issue and a hindrance going forward.
1: I don't see any reason why. I don't see any way that it won't be a hindrance in the future. There's no way. That's That's such a soft part. And it's so, like, if you touch that position in your own head, there's just bone there it's just bone it is your skull and that means that that knee has pushed that bone back into Gregory Rodriguez's skull because that is like an inch deep that cut was um, now in terms of the fight itself I actually have a slightly different read I think that when Chidi and Landed that shot. The referees and the cameras are trying their best to get a look at that cut. Chidieberekwani is staring at that cut immediately, and is staring at that cut throughout the rest of the fight. I wonder, and you know, I, I don't know, but when you're fighting, it's important for you to have supreme focus. It's important for you to tunnel vision yourself and remove all other factors and all other cerebral inputs and just focus on the task at hand. I question whether a cut as gruesome as that one removes you from your focus as a fighter and humanizes the situation just a little bit more. And I think if that happens, well, then remorse will flood in and portions of guilt will flood in to what extent, you know, do that, does that fill up the cuff, the, the cup of Chidi and Jikawani's brain. brain? I don't know. It's difficult to say, but if you show any remorse or any lack of willing to land damage on your partner or on your opponent, especially when it's somebody like Gregory Rodriguez in front of you, who's on full panic stations, as he touches his face immediately, you see the shock in the fact that his finger goes basically into his own brain. Like that's full panic stations. I've had a similar injury, not in the front of my head, but at the top of my head. Um, I, this is very embarrassing. <laughs> when I was working once I, uh, some lads didn't believe that I did kickboxing or whatever. So I went to fly kick myself through a door and there's the metal magnet at the top. And the top of my head hit the magnet. And I had a, an inch and a half deep cut on the top of my head here. Um, and the only reason I knew it was that bad was because I thought, like, oh, my head's a bit, my head hurts a little bit, and my finger disappeared inside my own head, right? So, like, that's they're bad cuts, they're rough cuts. Um, by the way, don't do dickhead things like jumping through a door, that's very silly. Um but for Gregor Rodriguez, and if my assumption is correct about Chidi and Giacquani and his emotional uh, entail of the fight, that, to me, is why it should be stopped. Because that, to me, is when it stops being sport.
0: Yeah, I, I'm now, I'm going to sit here as we finish this out and I go putting it together, I'm going to write that down and try to find out the answer to that and reach out to Chidi. And his people and see if we can we can have that conversation because i think that is a very interesting thing to discuss and even if even if it wasn't the case entirely or something he can articulate i think it's a thing for people to think about i also love the fact that you started down a i have a personal anecdote and instantly filled yourself with remorse and regret of like god i didn't have to share that with anybody but we're here now so Away we go. I've I've brought this up on my own. Look at the <laughs> look at the consequences of my own my own actions coming up to bite me in the ass. We move to the featherweight division. Andre Feely gets a should not have been split decision win over Bill Algio. Uh 29-28s across the board, one of them to Algio, who was awarded the third round whilst being back mounted, whilst being Attempted to be choked. Feely rightfully at the post-fight media availability essentially said, or not even essentially, full-on said, if you think that punching like this is more threatening than my arm under his neck, you should not be judging fights. Phrased it like... It's as if he looked at the language before he walked out there. And I know he didn't because I know Andre Feely already knows all of this shit. This was exactly the kind of fight I expected this fight to be. These are two smooth, quality veterans that live in that sort of second 15 in the featherweight division. One a little bit higher than the other. The one that was a little bit higher won the fight. We need to give more love to people like Andre Feely and Bill Algio. We need to give them more time. I'm glad they got an opportunity like this. Good performance all around. What were your thoughts?
1: The overarching thoughts I have for this fight is just that when Andre Feely is on, he's a problem. And it's just such a shame that we're not able to see consistency to this sort of form. You know, he's not a massive hitter. But he can chain wrestle he knows how to grapple and when he gets on people's back and when he gets into dominant positions he is a motherfucker right and i just wish i don't know what it is i'd love to know i'm not even sure that andre feely knows what it is
0: either but if he he does not sorry he does he does not know i've had the conversation
1: but if we could find some form just a four five six seven fights where that Andre Feely turns up we're in for a lot of fun I don't think he's championship material I don't think that he's going to set the world on fire there will be guys that even on his best form will beat him but boy oh boy is he a fun addition when he when he fights like that last night um I agree with what he says. Uh, if, uh, if you're, if you're forearm deep in a choke, yeah, pepper shots coming back. And we'll talk about this a little bit with Javed Basharat in a slightly different context. But the way that one of my coaches used to talk to me about situations is he's he always used to say address the thing that's fucking you hardest now that's (laughs) and it's you know it's not the greatest thing i love it but it's good advice though yeah because the thing that's fucking belalgio hardest is the arm wrapped around his throat right right it's not andre feely's head position it's not the fact that if he lands some pepper shots Andre Feely might decide for whatever reason that he doesn't want to choke him anymore. You have to address, and I'll put that in a slightly less crude term, you must address the danger that sits at the top of the hierarchy. Right. In that position, back-mounted, hooks, the whole thing, and we're looking at a one-arm choke without our hands being clasped yet, that's the thing you address first. And um, yeah, here we are.
0: Yeah, there were some technical elements to it that I was sitting there going like, man, I wish here was here that we could we could talk through the the changes mm-hmm. and the shifts that Andre Feely needs to make. Listen, Bill Algio is a black belt, a legitimate quality, very good grappler black belt. Did all the right things, peeling the hands, then trapped the one hand and did a very good job of keeping it tucked and isolated so that Andre Feely was left with only one arm to do any work with. But you mentioned the thing about the not going to be a champion, and and there's always going to be some guys that are just better than him. I mean, that's been the story of his career for the most part, right? I was live for the Yaya Rodriguez fight. Um, Sadiq Yusef, just a little bit better than him. Bryce Mitchell, just a little bit better than him. The ones that are the the questions or the, the tough ones to swallow are the quick loss to Joe Anderson-Britu before this. Um, you know, getting flying triangled but got a Fredo Pepe way back in the day. It's those moments. And and even just some of the like close fights, the the Daniel Pineda fight that ends because of an eye poke, but it's close for moments where it probably shouldn't be. I do think Feely is just a perfect ecosystem guy. It's a thing I talk about a lot of just exactly what you said. He's going to be a motherfucker for a lot of people. He is going to make you be on your absolute... Sadiq Youssef had to be his absolute best the night they fought Charles Rodin needed to be a little bit better the night they fought he's going to make you be your best and if you can't be he's going to beat you his best may not always beat everybody we got to give these guys more love we got to give fighters like that 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 just and I mean he's been around for for eight ten years now I think like that's another piece of this like Give these guys some love. We move to White. Joe Pfeiffer, breakout star of, of this season of Dana White's contender series thus far, gets the very expected first-round stoppage win over Alan Amadovsky. There's no takeaway here. There's there's nothing. I mean, I, I said it on last night on on my about last night or about last night's action piece. It continues the story of, of this summer where Pfeiffer comes back to Contender Series, made his first appearance against Dustin Foods, braced to stop a takedown, blows out his elbow. Gets a win on the regional circuit, gets a second chance on Contender Series, knocks out Ozzy Diaz, who is the LFA middleweight champ. It's a beautiful performance. It's the only finish of the night. Dana goes and has his big. All these guys that have been out here, everybody that's coming behind them, you want to see how you succeed, be Joe Pfeiffer that becomes a thing he gets this layup matchup yeah he gets this layup matchup it is what it is I don't think they're like he's one of those guys to me that sure great lovely win most people are beating Alan Amadovsky
1: there's nothing special in this guy yeah he I've written in my notes I'll read I'll read the read alone the Pfeiffer is fine <laughs> yeah. quite one-dimensional barely any setups on the feet good pressure footwork doesn't check kicks at all. Doesn't move out of the way of them. This fight went exactly how it was supposed to for the UFC. Right. That's my line.
0: Right. The only part of it that I will be interested in that intrigues me going forward is whether he gets the Patty Pimblet treatment or whether he gets the, fuck it, let's just see what happens. I think it'll be the Patty Pimblet treatment where he'll get some some favorable matchups going forward. But I think even some of those could, could go sideways because Amadovsky hit him a couple times and he's a guy that he's going to run into a level where it just, it just isn't going to work out. Yeah, that's, that's really, I have nothing to say on that. No, for sure. We move to heavyweight. The next fight either. Fuck this heavyweight. (laughs) So my one thing that I wanted, that I want to, address or talk about with this fight. Rodrigo Nascimento defeats Tanner Boser by split decision. Boser came in at 229 and fought a guy that was 250 plus. And lo and behold, the grappler that was 250 plus was able to keep the guy that is not a grappler that was 229 on the ground for long periods of time. Now Boser posted as you, as you come to expect after these things, is like sorry I didn't get the job done. I knew if I went to the judges, I wasn't gonna get it anyways. It was close, blah 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 blah. I as I said, I, I was traveling on Friday. I didn't watch weigh-ins. I didn't know anything going into this. And when they did the tail of the tape and said Tanner Boser, two twenty-nine, I was like, what in the fuck are we doing here? What are you what are you doing? You you had success reasonably prior to this in the division. What are we doing, dude? That that felt like to me a just giveaway. Just a here, have this victory, have this path to victory. And if I don't knock you out early, you're gonna be able to wrestle me. And it was pretty, pretty straightforward, pretty pedestrian wrestling, grappling, takedowns, control. I, I think this is one like he wants to say I wasn't gonna win it on the if it went to the judges. You weren't going to win it if it went to the canvas, and that was on you, not anybody else. Go to light heavyweight.
1: There's still, I mean, body, that's, fat to lose. There's still body fat to lose.
0: That's, that's the thing, right? If you can get to 229.
1: To right. His body fat alone, if he got rid of another 10, 15 pounds of body fat, which wouldn't be difficult, right? There's, it's all there. Then what? You're like 215. Right fucking have a big piss go for a run and you'll be 205 in no time like like i think look th- there's a part of this right and we'll talk about weight cutting when it gets to aspen lad and i'm gonna fucking do <laughs> we're actually gonna cancel most of the talk about this card and talk about aspen lad but we're not all right no it's fine
0: but no i'm we started we- talking about it offline you and i just the other day yes. and i said you know i'm back because i want to just jump online and and tape a pod about Aspen Ladd, so we will definitely get into it. So let's yeah. let's buzz through the rest of this, and then spend an hour on her.
1: The thing that I, um, I don't like weight cutting, right? But getting in shape to fight, right. I have no problem with. Like, what did everyone used to say about uh, Roy Roy Nelson? Right, is he's probably a middleweight wrapped in a heavyweight's body, <laughs> right? You know, and
0: it's the, the same, same about me.
1: If Tanabosa. Got himself in good shape. And I'm not saying Song Yudong shape. I'm not.
0: <laughs> right.
1: But I'm just saying, if he gets himself into a shape where he can see the scale when he stands on it, he's probably a light heavyweight, you know? And then let's see where we go. Because he hits like a heavyweight, you know? Okay, maybe he doesn't move like one, but he probably doesn't know the speed that he can move because he's carrying around so much excess weight. So uh, to your point, maybe... Maybe we're seeing a Jared Cannonier type transformation here where he's already on his way to light heavyweight, and he's like, ah, fuck it. I'll just take the fight. Whatever happens, happens. I'm going to fight at light heavyweight next time anyway. So, you know, there's a possibility of that. And if there is more power to him, fair play to him for taking a decision to get himself in shape and be a healthier version of himself. Fair play to him if that's the case. Because I don't see any other reason why he'd lose so much weight. Right
0: might be one that I have to reach out and, and ask that question about. Opening fight in the main card, Anthony Fluffy Hernandez gets a third round technical submission win over Marc-Andre Berrio. This was this was just a, a dominant effort from Fluffy, a guy that I admitted yesterday throughout the card and, and both after the card as well, that I've had a tough time getting a read on. Um, thought the performance against Rodolfo Vieira, kind of elevated his stock a little more than maybe it should have. He looked phenomenal in this fight. This was a great effort. Looked very clean, very crisp in all facets. Look forward to seeing what comes next from Fluffy. What were your thoughts?
1: I dropped the ball on this completely and I forgot to watch it. What I mean forgot to watch it is I scrolled through the fights, as I always do, taking my notes, whatever. And I just looked at the fight card now and I was like, fuck, the actual fight I wanted <laughs> to watch, the one right. with the submission things from the guy right. that did the submission things. Right. I didn't watch it. So I will go back and
0: watch that fight.
1: And uh, I was going to say,
0: we, we will have a special Tuesday edition of the next, next, next day takeaways yes. where we just discuss that fight. Or Absolutely. maybe we'll jump on and we'll talk about some of the best submissions of the year or we'll figure we'll something, something out. Yeah. Preliminary card closes out with an emotional. 69 second victory for Damon Jackson fighting just a few days after the passing of his older brother. Lovely, lovely kick up the middle that catches Pat Sabatini on the chin. And from there, it's just, you're hurt. And you're it's one of those things where Pat Sabatini's defense when he's, when he's hurt is to play to his strength, right? I'm a grappler. Let me get in. Let me close the distance. Let me see if I can just clinch up, turn this into grappling. Well, Damon Jackson's a better grappler. He's, he's a quality grappler. I shouldn't say better. He's a quality grappler in his own right. Shucks him off, throws him to the floor, climbs it to mount, gets the finish, and then the floodgates open. This was a terrific performance under unfathomable, unfathomable circumstances. It's a four straight win for Damon Jackson, who I think for a long, long time has been a guy that people kind of just think of for his his losses, for his shortcomings, right? His first stint in the UFC wasn't great. He had that PFL knockout and I think like 12 seconds where he got flying need in the jaw and just out. He's looked very good since coming back. I think he fits in that filialgio group in the second 15 all the respect in the world for damon jackson going out and doing this to a very dangerous fighter and pat sabatini under the circumstances and and i know i speak for you as well when i say our hearts go out to to damon and his family
1: 100 percent, 100 percent. i'm not going to talk about the intangibles because you know you've already covered them but what i will talk about is how how nice the setup for the kick actually was so something that pat sabatini does is he sits low in his stance right he sits low in his stance one because it allows him to to shoot quicker but also it allows him to sit down and his punches a little bit easier what damon jackson reads is that his chin is closer to the floor right which means that the the airtime needed to land a front kick is much much less right and you can hide it quicker so Jackson starts to circle to his right. And as Sabatini is following, Jackson just squares his hips. Now, what does that mean for Sabatini in his, in his uh, reptilian brain that doesn't really do much thinking? It just sees things and does. He's like, square hips, I must shoot. Right? So Sabatini lowers his level even more. As that happens, up comes the front kick, lands him on the jaw, and Sabatini's body's like reptilian's brain's like, fuck, fuck. Um, more grappling, I guess. And sure, I, I think I think you're, you're right to correct yourself that he's not a better grappler. There's not many fellas that are good grapplers when their chin's been posted to Rosette, right? But what we then saw from Damon Jackson was just really good cerebral grappling. Gets an underhook, gets his post. Turns Pat Sabatini with a pivot, lands almost directly into mount, allows him to turn if he wants to, and then just bridges all the way through, bridges into the lower back, makes it really hard to turn, and just wails on him. Beautiful. Really, really, really beautiful. It was lovely that the camera team shot to his family afterwards. That was a really nice look. It was really lovely to see a guy that seems like he's one of the good guys, not to say that Pat Sabatini isn't one of the good guys. He seems like a lovely guy as well, but we talked about beauty moments in MMA. This is one of those beauty moments. This is one of the epitomes of the sport. A man loses a close family member, an extremely close family member still goes out, cuts the weight, gets into the mindset, finishes a very, very dangerous fighter, and then
0: you just see the expulsion of emotion changes his nickname for the night to honor his brother changing from the leech to action jackson the way his brother was introduced on the football field we've seen it at times right we've seen the the not fairy tale version of this in london earlier this year with mike grundy we saw it with cody stamen last year his brother passed very suddenly went out and fought and got a victory it is one of those beauty moments. It was great for him to get to have it. Um, yeah, just just terrific. Trevin Giles and Lewis Cosey is a fight that happened. That's all we're saying. We're just we're just moving on. Uh Loma Luke Bunmi defeats Denisi Gomes. Unanimous decision 30-27, 30-27, 29, 28. It kind happened. of another fight that happened. Like to it me, was it was it. the the, it the good, the goods and the bads of Loma. She can yeah. be very good on the feet. She can be very nice in the clinch, obviously, as a Muay Thai fighter. Some of the foot sweeps are lovely. Some of the elbows from top position when she's she's down there are, are great. But then she has moments where she's still just like eight fights into her MMA career and has no idea what she's doing. Denise Gomes fought on Contender Series earlier this year, took this on short notice. This is a throwaway fight to me for her. This is, you're 22. Fine. Just take it. Foot's in the door. Here we are. Go train. She's with a good team. Give her some time. Let's see. Trey Ogden defeats Daniel Zell Huber. 30-27, 30-27, 29-28. What was that? Ian and I were fucking raging.
1: We were, we were trying to figure out how to say that fella's name. We're like, where the fuck is Spencer?
0: <laughs> Daniel Zell Huber. And I mean, this is another one of those fights that just happened. It was, to me, an example of a debuting fighter, a young fighter stepping onto the big stage with some pressure on his shoulders. He was a huge favorite coming into this fight against a guy that, as I said in my recap, Trey Ogden isn't a world beater. No one's going to confuse him with the next great lightweight but he's been in there with some guys and he's got 15, 18 fights and most of them are against solid regional competition. Like he's the guy that has been the best fighter on the, in the regional promotion that he's been in for most of his career. And when you're Daniel little Huber and you've blown through a bunch of scrubs to then face that guy in your UFC debut and have everybody saying, look at this undefeated heavy favorite against this guy that's okay, but not that great that he should be. Sometimes you get what we got. I think it will be a learning moment for Zell Huber. It's nice for Trey Ogden to get a UFC victory. We just move on. Women's Flyweight, Jillian Robertson submits Maria Agapova. We touched on it earlier. (laughs) I will tell everybody that Harry sent me a note earlier today as we were talking and sort of like me soliciting his thoughts on the fights it's it really is the perfect summation of Jillian Robertson as he said Jillian Robertson is a shit show until she's not like it's it's just she's she's in a world of danger all the way through until you make enough mistakes that she can be successful for the longest time she was a fighter I could not quit in my 10 things because I do like the grapplings. I do like, you know, 26, 27 now, all of this experience, chance to grow, chance to improve. This is who she is, ladies and gentlemen. She is the person that is going to get beat to a pulp until you fuck up enough to give her your neck. And that's what it feels like happening. And I'm not trying to take anything away from Jillian Robertson. I think she is going to beat the Maria Agapovas of the world Most of the time, but she won't beat the JJ Aldriches as we saw last time out. And, and this was, this was quintessential Jillian Robertson on Saturday
1: night. It's just so frustrating. Like (laughs) it's so frustrating. Like I'm I'm the same as you that I, um, I was on the bandwagon when like, you know what she is. I'm trying to think of the fella's name. Who's Ben Askren's son? <laughs> Chase Hooper. That's who she is. She is the female Chase Hooper. I just... Where do I even fucking start? A gap of her comes out, right? In the most awkward-looking stance that you could imagine. Her chin is all the way out. Her arms are nowhere near by her sides. Her fists are curled up like she wants to give you a hug. You know, her body's all leading. It's like, it's not, it's not even a tie stance. It's it's a nothing stance, really. And Gillian Robertson still gets her head back across the fucking canvas. I'm like, what are we, what are we actually doing here? Robertson ducks in on a single, a gap of a wraps up a guillotine. Robertson uses a butterfly hook to gain top, which was actually quite interesting. And this is the thing that's so fucking infuriating about Gillian Robertson is some of the stuff that she does genuinely is brilliant. She's there are huge... some moments that are just, oh. yeah. It's, it's the quintessential chaos and order, right? It's the quintessential just utter shithousery with then real, real brilliance. Like very rarely, it's quite often, when you see a fighter wrap a guillotine from a single leg, you see them use the single leg as a method to roll over their opponent. Well, Gillian Robertson reversed that and did the opposite and managed to land herself in a good position. Fought off the guillotine, had top position. That's beautiful. That's exactly what you want. For for Agapova, she actually wanted the opposite. She wanted to finish the guillotine on top, right? Anyway, does all that stuff. Agapova rises for the disconnect and Robertson moves her own single. But this is where I don't understand right? So she has a gap of up against the fence with a single leg and looks to drag her away from the cage. Fine. No problem. We all know that the cage is a great tool to help fighters get back up, right? So she drags her away from the cage. And where does she put her? Back on the cage, the other side. Uh, why? 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 I don't understand. Why? Why? Answer me the question. Why? I don't understand. Then... She just gets hit with a million, I know that you hate this, Conor McGregor elbows, right? Gets murdered with those Conor McGregor elbows and Travis Brown elbows, whatever. Magic. Over and over and over and over again. And she's just holding the single leg like is, magic is going to happen, I guess. She's just going to tire herself out, smashing my head to pieces. And then eventually when she does get it down, again, there's frustration, when she does get her down and she does control her in that second round, she's using wonderful hip rides, claw grips to open up elbows. So much, Dagestani handcuffs, so much of the new grappling matter that I think is going to, we're going to be see blossoming over the next little while, she's using to absolute brilliance. She puts a lady to sleep with no hooks. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful stuff. But the duality of her performance makes me want to smash my head into the corner of my desk so
0: I look like Gregory Rodriguez. So my question for you, and I've 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 thought about this for a number of of fights with Jillian Robertson. She seems to me like somebody who is very process oriented in terms of her jujitsu, yeah. and is very focused on her grappling and therefore that's all that like that's all she's going to be. That's all that's, this is, this is what it is. She's not going to suddenly bolt on the quality wrestling and build up the, the hands. And so she's just relying on toughness to get to her spots. And then when she gets there, it's, it is great. It is It is dangerous. She says things like, I'm always going to finish chokes and, you know, having neck, having neck cuddles with Priscilla Kashwera when she's gouging her in the eyes. But does that, does that compute to you? Does the like process of her, because she looks like somebody that for all the good choices that she makes on the ground and all the good decisions, they also look like their thoughts they're not just reactions. They're not just instinct. It's it's more right now. I need to do this. Now I have to move to that. Like, can't remember what fight it was. But you could see the armbar setup coming three miles away. Never mind a mile away. And I think that to me is the thing that is the, the hang-up with her, is that she just knows the one thing that she needs to do and the one way to get. To where she wants to get to and if that doesn't work well we're just going to be stuck here
1: i'm going to be really brutal but it's for the love of jillian robertson more than anything else just transition to grappling stop fighting i know that the money isn't the same but you're not going to be making a ton of money anyway from camp fees and this and that the next thing because you're you're losing more fights than you're winning right I don't even think she has good wrestling. It's not good. It's just persistent and just grapple, like, just go. You'll, you'll get a bunch of matches because you have the UFC behind you. Just go and grapple. Like she doesn't want to be an MMA fighter. Right. It feels as though she wants, to she prove. wants to be a grappler. She wants to be a grappler in MMA right? And I don't know why I feel like maybe this is me riding the high of ADCC and fuck me, I wish we could do a podcast on ADCC, but like, this is me. ADCC, for the first time, has packed out a 20,000 seat arena. The whole show, the pyrotechnics, the pride announcer is there, the whole nine yards, right? There is money that is going to be in grappling in the next five years. Jillian Robertson is still young enough that she can be going and doing these things. Who's number one? All of these sort of grappling shows will pay you a wage, especially right. if you go and win fights. You can go as Gillian Robertson and do seminars and do this. and do. I just don't think the head trauma is worth it for somebody who has such a limited skill set and who's somebody who's been in a good camp for a consistent amount of time and has shown little to no improvement in the weak areas of her game. It's time, as Bruce Buffer would say.
0: You, you mentioned the good camp part. I think that's actually part of it because I, I don't think she's with a good camp. She was at ATT. She was at ATT for a while. And then Dean Thomas left and she went with Dean Thomas. I believe she's now training with the goat shed um, in Orlando, Florida, which, you know, has got some people, but it's not, it's not the group. It's not the crew that she was with at ATT that was going to put her through the paces and give her those opportunities to level up. But I digress. It's a good, it's still, it's still a nice finish. It's still a good win, but she, this, this is who she is. This is where she's going to be expecting any different is, is foolhardy. We move to Javid Basharat getting a unanimous decision win over Tony Gravely. Basharat is a guy that you and I are both high on. We both have, you know, aspirations for, I guess, or expectations of this was both a good performance and a, Ah, uh, yes. Your idea that you're 18 months away from contention are just a little bit silly. Tell me Maybe. your thoughts. Maybe. So,
1: going into this fight, I said that it may be a little bit too soon for Uh The reason why I say that is, can you tell me the fellow he fought just before? What's his fucking name? Trevin Jones. Thank you. Trevin. Jones. You're welcome. Trevin Jones is a pretty one dimensional fighter, big hitter, big old hitter with a little bit of grappling, right? That's a perfect styles matchup for Javier Basharat because he can do the slip counter stuff. He can ride out away from the power. He can do some takedowns if he wants to. There's not a great deal of three dimensional, four dimensional fighting coming from Trevin Jones. And that's no disrespect. That's just who he is as a fighter. That is not the case for Tony Gravely. And to go from a Trevin Jones to a Tony Gravelly, It may not seem like it to the untrained eye, but trust me, it's a big old step up, a big old step up. Tony Gravely is like the gatekeeper to the, t- the upper echelon of the outside 15. That's where we're looking. Trevin Jones is nowhere near the outside 15, right? It felt to me, and I wrote this in my notes and I just got, the fight told me, as I like to say, right? The fight told me something. There was a an eye poke, I think, or a nut shot, maybe, or it could be the doctor stoppage for the 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 the, the uh, headbutt, right? That break changed the fight for Javid Basharat. It happened about two and a half minutes into the first round. In the first two and a half minutes, Tony Gravelly was basically doing what he wanted. He was landing, Javid wasn't landing back, he wasn't checking low kicks, and Tony was taking him down. Then the break happened. And I think Javid then realized, oh yeah, shit, I'm in a fight. I can do some fighting. Now, whether that's a, uh, whether we saw a window into the soul of Javid Basharat there and we saw an interesting mental deficiency that he has, I don't know. Whether we saw him for the first time come up against a fighter who he actually had to change his level four and build his level four, I don't know, but what did happen is he did change his level, right? And this is the exciting thing. Right. <clears throat> there were moments in the fight, and we can talk about some technical things if you wish, where he is making poor decisions. Preliminarily, in grappling exchanges, there was two situations specifically. Tony Gravely has a back body lock. Basharat opts for a kimura. Guess what happens? He gets fucking dumped on his side. Bad decision. There's a moment when Tony Gravelly has like a half back body look, looking for a, a top hook. And Basharat goes and tries to strike with the top hand a la uh, Algio, right? And Tony Gravely immediately sweeps his leg out, takes him down, lands big shots. Poor decision. I think to me, that is a reflection of the competition that Javid Basharat has been in prior to this one. Tony Gravely is far and away the best fighter that Javi Basharat has ever fought minus the mistakes and minus the first two and a half minutes. I was very impressed. I was very impressed because it's very difficult to make adjustments on the fly. And Basharat made loads. He engaged in the grappling with Tony Gravely. He counter wrestled the double that he put Tony Gravely on the floor with was absolutely gorgeous the half guard pass was beautiful and we could talk about that. And I will talk about that because that's important. And he grew into the, I'm going to land a one, two Tony Gravely allowed him to get into his rhythm. And then when Basharat thought I'm in my rhythm of slip one, two out, Tony would land a third. Then Basharat made adjustments on that as well. And would throw a third to make sure that Tony Gravelly wasn't throwing a third. There was lots and lots and lots of positives one other negative I will say is he's not checking leg kicks. And by the end of the fight, those leg kicks were taking their toll and he was switching to Southpaw, not out of want, but out of necessity.
0: That's a problem. Go on. No, you you seem like you have more to, more to discuss. I just want to talk
1: about the half guard piece, right? How about it? The half guard piece was gorgeous for a number of reasons. One is we don't see Gravely on his back very often, Right. We don't see him stuck on his back either. He's a good man for wrestling up, loves an underhook, loves a getup. Basharat did two brilliant things. He was in half guard passing to Tony Gravely's right-hand side. Right. Generally, when you're passing half guard, there are some things that are important. One is to clear the knee shield. In MMA, you don't get a lot of knee shield because knee shield doesn't allow you an underhook to get up and knee shield is seen more of a de- as a defensive structure. So very often guys will play half guard, no knee shield, and will allow them to get to their underhook. Now, the problem with that in MMA is you don't have a knee shield, right? So there's no barrier between you and your partner for getting hit. Generally though, it seems like an accepted meta that the guy on bottom plays no knee shield. The guy on top just looks to either get upper body frames and upper body grips and pins and looks to pass or does a bit of the striking, right? Like it's, it, you don't see a lot of big posturing up and just landing hammer fists in, in half guard with no knee shield. Anyway, Gravely is looking for this underhook. So Javid swims a cross face. The cross face is, is good because it stops, the, it restricts some of the motion of Gravely. He then begins to look for inside knee position. Gravely switches for a two on one. And that's this is Gravely's mistake. Switches to a two on one to clear the cross face hand. So, whilst that allows him to swim his own underhook in now, what Javid does from this position is he cl- brings his left knee to the right hip of Tony Gravely. And because Gravely has swum both hands to the inside, he's exposed his back. Now, Javid makes a really smart decision. He doesn't dive for the back. Instead, what he does is he walks his weight. To the center meaning even if tony gravelly does get an underhook his hips are not in the position to build up from it he takes that cross face hand and hits tony gravelly with it that forces tony gravelly to move slightly javid punches a far side underhook switches his weight to the other side and passes with an underhook which is absolutely golden now tony does a good job of recovering half guard on that side. But that is high-level grappling against a
0: guy that knows how to grapple. One of the things I said during the fight that echoes what you've said here is that doing what Javed Bashar did to Tony Gravely, I believe it was in the second round, where he clearly kind of takes or starts taking over the fight. It's very hard to do. Tony Gravely is quality. We, we know this. The reason you and I and most other people that were excited about this fight we're excited about this fight because this is a you are learning something. You are this is telling us something. To me, it told me that David Basharat has the upside that we believe he has, that he that he has the potential that we all think he has. And that it's okay now for the next couple fights to just kind of hang out at this level, to just keep fighting the guys that are right here. Just build on build on the performance, fill those little holes, work on the few things that you're mentioning that I'm sure he will recognize afterwards that he'll work on with Dewey Cooper, that he'll work on with his brother and Amir Albazi. And just, there's enough going on at Bantamweight that you don't need to be rushing your way into this when you're not quite ready. Because this was, as you said, the biggest test of his career. It was a huge step up versus the level of competition he has fought previously. It is a very good win, but also a just, just, all right. Not, not that the potential isn't there. Not that the upside isn't, isn't there. Exactly. But you're not at, let's speed into the top 15. Just. Go get two or three more. This, to me, should be a signal
1: to the UFC that you have something on your hands. Yes, you have something on your hands that just needs a bit of seasoning, just a bit of spice, just a little bit longer in the oven. If they give him that time, this is a top ten fighter. Yes. If they don't give him the time, it might not be a top ten fighter. Agreed. But I see no reason why you don't give him the time. I really, really don't. Just allow him to grow, allow him to be who he is, allow the the fantastic parts of his game to marinate and allow some of the holes. Because this really was the perfect fight for Javid Basharat. It could not have gone better for Javid Basharat. Why? Because he came in on his UFC debut and blew Trevin Jones out of the water. He's now come in, second fight, Tony Gravely, seasoned veteran, the the, the the lock keeper for the upper echelons of this division, and he got shown things he needs to work on. I would love to see him take a back step here. I don't want to see Nate Maness as the next guy because that's the right. fucking fight they're going to make, right? I don't want to, <laughs> I do right. not want to see that fight. <clears throat> I want to see somebody lower tier than Nate Maness, and I want to see Javid go in, and I want to see him counter-wrestle. I want to see him allow the leg kicks to flow. And I want to see him check them. I want to see him move. I want to see just a bit of progression. And then, sure, let's see Nate Manus in two or three fights. And then after Nate Manus let's see uh, somebody with uh, a name that has Numa, uh, Numa Gamedov at the end of it. Let's see right. all. Of the, let's have all of the
0: fun. Right. But, Johnny Pogba but, says, let's do it when he's at his best. Opening mode of the night... Nicholas Moda, Cameron Van Kamp. It's a thing that happened. Moda gets a win. TKO at about four minutes. Cameron Van Kamp isn't UFC caliber. Nick Moda is now one and one. Got thrown in with Jim Miller in his debut. Now beats a guy that he should beat. We'll, we'll see. Cut them both. <laughs> You're a little more savage than me. That wraps us for the card. The fights that happened. As we teased earlier, let's get into this Aspen Lad a little bit. I don't want to spend too much time on it. We're already at an hour 25. Thank you to everybody that has made it to this point with us. Um, Aspen Lad was supposed to fight Sarah McMahon. It is a fight that had been postponed from earlier in the year. It's a fight that was originally supposed to take place in like 2020 and it's just been postponed a bunch of times because of injuries and COVID and different things. This time, it was postponed because Aspen Lad stepped on the scale at 138 pounds, two over the non-title limit, and the bout was scrapped. I don't know whether that was Sarah McMahon saying, no, fuck you. I don't know whether that was medical professionals saying, nope. I don't know if that was the UFC just being like, nah, we're not. No, we're done. Aspen lad for me right now, stands as one of the biggest tragedies in this sport. She is someone whose career I've watched from the get-go. She is somebody that very early on, I thought showed championship potential because of the physicality that she brings, because of the toughness and grit and sort of just tenacity that she does have at times and now she is a fighter that feels just i don't even want to say it, like star crossed is not isn't correct because it's not like it's self sabotage and it's internal sabotage to a young woman that is 27 years old can't make this live can't make this weight just can't anymore shouldn't try and yet continues to get rolled out here for these moments of scorn and embarrassment and Lord knows what it's doing to her still developing female body. Like, at what point does somebody step in and go, here's what we need to do? I don't know what all the, here's what we need to do answers are, But somebody needs to have a conversation with Aspen Ladd, with her coach and boyfriend, Jim West, with the people around her, with her management. Whoever it is that she trusts with her career, they all need to sit down and figure this shit out. Because in the last four years, five years of her UFC career, or maybe really just the duration of her UFC career, this is the story. And this shouldn't have been the story for a fighter that showed her kind of promise. I think the answer to this is
1: that weight has to be taken out of the fighter's hands. I've I've sort of reported this a little to some people on Twitter that have decided to argue with me when I say things like fuck weight cutting. Um, fuck weight cutting, by the way. Um, I think the answer is commission based decisions. And I think that we talked earlier about the UFC having sway and having power and influence over decisions that are made in the MMA space. And that is likely one of the biggest roadblocks and one of the biggest detriments to the sport as a whole regardless of brand names, fighter names, this, that, the next thing. The commission's not, you know what the commission's like? It's like the fucking royal family. They've got the power. They just won't use it. And they let the government run amok. Now I'm not saying the royal family are good people, plenty of cunts in there. But when you have commissions that are blindly for profit, allowing the sport to degrade and I'm not saying all commissions because there are some commissions and some commissioners that are doing their absolute best for this sport. Then it becomes cancerous. What needs to happen is the commissions need to devise a plan. And if we, if they want to talk to me, I've got an idea of how they combat and how they put a stop to aggressive weight cutting and how they rationalize what fight what weight class a fighter should be in it should not be on the ufc and it should not be on the fighter we cannot trust fighters to look after their bodies they fight for a living they don't know how to look after their bodies we cannot trust the ufc to look after these fighters bodies because we already know that they are egregiously discriminating against these fighters for profit therefore the sole arbiter has to be the commission in light of it being a union which we know isn't going to happen anytime soon the commissions need to put their big boy pants on and they need to sort their shit out because without commissions the UFC does not exist. Without commissions, the UFC, Bellator, PFL, Cade Warriors, CFFC, you name it. They are not able to legally put on an event. That means the commissions are the most powerful people in this whole trifecta of conversation. And they act as the weakest. It is a disgrace and it is shameful. And it needs to stop.
0: And that is a good place for us to stop. We Thank you for for tuning in. As always, we're happy to be back. I'm happy to be back. Happy to be talking with my guy again. He is Harry Powell at BJJ underscore Harry Powell. Go follow him. Check out all the severe MMA stuff. He will have a severe spotlight up from this fight in the next day or two. He will be tweeting, I'm sure, throughout the rest of the day. About ADCCs. Not sure what we're going to do during the week. As I mentioned earlier, there's no UFC event. So we will we will organize some stuff. I will be here as best as I can, health permitting. But for now, it's 20 after 10 on a Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning here in Abbotsford. I'm going to go check in on my wife. I'm going to go check in on myself. I'm going to watch some football. I'm going to hang out. I'm going to say thank you for being here. It's nice to be back. It's good to be home. We love you. We appreciate you. Look after yourselves, look after one another, and we'll see you next weekend.